weeks uh, between starting today and then until our next transition which will be our four-week newcomers orientation so on September the 3rd September the 3rd we start the four-week newcomers orientation and the newcomers orientation is for those as the name suggests who are new and it orients you to our church and what we believe and what our philosophy is and why we do things the way we do. It's in a small setting. I lead that for those four weeks. You get a notebook of material, and it's designed to inform you. And in that small setting, you can ask questions, and hopefully by the time we're finished with it, you have a, a thorough understanding of our church so that you can make an informed decision about whether this is the place that God would have you. Deb joined uh, today, and she went through that very process, took the newcomer's orientation, prays about it, thinks about it, makes a decision, and that's the way we like for everybody to, to do that. So if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, I would encourage you to do that. I'll look forward to having you in the class. But that'll start uh, September the, the 3rd. Then on October the 1st, we are going to be sending mailers to the entire 48183 uh, zip code. We do that three times a year for series that we do in this hour. That series is going to be titled God's Design for sexuality. And you all know that that is a big topic and uh, lots of uh, subcategories uh, of issues related to that that are going on in our culture and in our schools and uh, a lot of upheaval. So we're going to give God's perspective on that. Perhaps pray about that. Think about somebody that you think might benefit from it and invite them to it. Our next baptism is in November. November the 5th is our next baptism. I'm announcing it this far out, though, because if you've never been baptized, which means that you have been immersed to symbolize the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That's what baptism is. If you've never uh, been baptized after becoming a believer, then that's something Jesus commands for all of his followers. We would love to uh, walk through with you what the Bible says about that, uh, who is eligible to be baptized. It's someone who has come to Christ in salvation. We have a one-page application for that. It's at the Welcome Center that's out in the lobby. Tell them you want the baptism application. Fill it out. Turn it into them. They'll get it to me, and we'll go from there. So those are the things that are coming up. Orientation starts uh, September 3rd for four weeks. Uh, October 1, we start the God's Design for Sexuality series. On November 5th is our next baptism. All right, so I've got six weeks. Just talk about whatever I feel like. You know, we finished the, we finished the uh, last series that we had sent mailers about on change of heart. And so now I've got these six weeks in between. And I always warn people in the summertime that these are the most dangerous of the series. Because I can just, whatever. You know, so you never know what's, what's coming. And you see on the screen the personality, and we've got sin in big, in big uh, letters there. So this should be an exciting topic over the next uh, few weeks. You see the bags there? As uh, we get into today's first lesson, it's because that we all have baggage. That's the idea. We all have baggage that we carry with us. And that baggage that we carry with us is to be increasingly discarded and changed over time as we grow in our Christian walk. That's the idea. 
And this, at least for a couple of weeks, I want to take uh, some time to help us identify the baggage that we have, each of us, so that we can be more adept at identifying what it is that needs to change in our lives. I think it coming on the heels of the Change of Heart series, then it's, it's fitting for us. The goal that Christ has given to his church, to all of his churches, including this one, is in our church's theme verse. Our church has a theme verse, Colossians 1.28. Colossians 1.28. And in Colossians 1.28, uh, it says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. That's what that verse says, that we proclaim Christ, we proclaim him by doing these two things, teaching and admonishing. The teaching is a word that's directed toward Christian people, people who are already, already come to Christ. The admonishing piece is for people who are not Christian, so you do both. You teach in a way that builds up those who are believers and also evangelizes those who are not, gives them the gospel so that they can receive Christ. So we proclaim him teaching and admonishing. Our proclamation is in teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone perfect, mature in Christ. And if you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul who wrote that, you find him saying very often that his goal is to be able to stand before the Lord and have something to show for this ministry that the Lord had given him. And in particular, in particular what he wanted to be able to show is lives of people that have been affected for Christ by Paul's ministry. That's what we want. That's what I personally want. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, you are our joy and crown. You, Thessalonians. The fact that I was able to have a ministry to you is a joy to me because this is what God has called me to do and the word of God has had good effect in your life. He talks about in chapter 1 the evidences of that good effect that it has had and it thrills his, his heart so he's all about seeing people come to Christ and then grow in Christ. That's what our church's theme verse is. That's what our church's overall aim is. And then for us personally, that should be our aim, to be used as instruments of the Lord in the lives of others. See them come to the Lord, see them grow in the Lord. Right? All right, so far so good. I've got nodding heads. So for the church as an organization and then leadership uh, in, in guiding the organization, what we need to do then is develop pathways for people to do that. Ways for people to take the next step in their, in their Christian growth. But of course that all assumes that you've got people who want that, who want to grow, who want to move from where they are to where they need to go. It's my experience that too many church people are satisfied being church people. So the extent of my Christian growth is I go to church. I go to church and I'm with other people who go to church. And we've all learned 
a kind of almost uniform lingo. So we know the Christianese. We know how to, how to talk. We've discarded some of the ways we used to talk before we came to Christ. So there have been some evident changes in our lives. And we kind of settle into this sort of autopilot in our lives. And I, am abs- I, I know for sure, based upon Scripture, that there should be no such thing as autopilot for, for a Christian. And the reason is, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that he, Paul, now when you get close, close to Christ's likeness like Paul had, let me know. I'm nowhere near. You know, if you were to single out a Christian person who was pursuing hard after Christ, you would, you would have a hard time finding someone uh, who did that more fervently than the Apostle Paul. But he says, I strain toward the goal. You guys remember that? I've not attained the goal. I keep straining toward the goal. So Paul hadn't arrived. He keeps seeing things that he needs to have changed in his own life. If that's true for Paul, certainly it's true for me, and certainly it's true true for you. This side of heaven, we all need to be in the process of changing, taking the next steps. So the goal that God has given to his church is for us to ultimately present everyone mature in Christ. We each should desire that, but it is very easy for us environmentally in the church environment to settle in to just kind of a comfortable, I come, I go through the routine, I leave, not a whole lot changes from week to week, year to year to year. Now the good news is with this change process, that God has called individual Christians to, and that he has called the church to assist we Christians in, the good news is it will happen according to God's word. The change will happen over time. Here's Romans chapter 8. And you guys are familiar with Romans 8 because some of you have it needle-pointed, cross-stitched, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good, of those who love him, who, are, who have been called according to his purpose. So we know that God works all things. You've heard me say in the past that the King James Version of that verse says, and we know that all things work together for good. Well, the, the problem with that is it sounds like things work. But it's actually we know God works all things. You see, things don't work by themselves. The God who has saved us is actively at work in all things for the benefit of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, to put that another way, his children, Christians, those who are saved. God is actively at work. And then the next verse says this. Here's why he's actively at work. For... Because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So those that God saved, that's another phrase for the same thing, those that God loved and called according to his purpose, those he foreknew and predestined, that would be us if we belonged to to Christ. But he did this for the purpose of conforming us to the likeness of his Son, The reason that we are to be conformed to the likeness of his son is that, this is what it says, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn means preeminent, that he might have the preeminent place 
among all of those that are his brothers and sisters before God the Father. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his, his brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're not Christ, but we are co-heirs with Jesus who came in his humanity. And in his humanity then, we have this spiritual family that we are a part of with him as the preeminent one. And so he's the preeminent one because the goal is for everybody to be like him in our character. And then it says, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So there is God actively at work in the lives of his people those who have been called according to his purpose, what is that purpose? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? So Jesus will be the preeminent one among these people that are in the family of God, that are his brothers and sisters from the human standpoint. And then verse 30 of Romans chapter 8 says, here you got this chain of people who, in verse 28, are loved by God, called according to his purpose, being conformed to the image of his Son. These people were predestined, called, justified, glorified. Those four things. And so think about just the timeline for when those happened. When did predestined happen? Well, predestined happens like a lot. Uh, predestination, that's a big word in a lot of ways. And that means that, that your destiny was predetermined by a sovereign God. That's what predestination means. That's heavy, but that's what it means. Predestined. And the people that he predestined in eternity past, so your timeline goes to eternity past, and then it comes into present time. Those people in time, at a point in time, he called. Predestined, called. So when did he call? The Bible speaks a number of times about the, the call of the gospel. He called when you heard and responded to the gospel. That's when you were called. So you're predestined, and the God who predestined does work in time, in your life, brings you to a place and time to hear the gospel, moves upon your heart, calls you out of the world and to himself, and you are saved. Called. So here's your timeline, predestined, eternity past, in time, at some time in your life, if you belong to Christ, you were called, saved, converted, you became a Christian, you were born again. All in tandem with hearing the, the gospel message. For me, that was age 19 in my bedroom. That's when the, I was called in that moment, reading the Bible, in my bed, in my bedroom, 19. That was 20 years ago now. Just want to make sure you all were awake, okay? Predestined, do the timeline, called, but then there's justified. So on your timeline, at the time you receive the, the gospel, that God calls you, he moves upon your heart, calling you out of the world. When he does that and you respond in faith, believing, 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as I preached in the first hour. Then God, as I said in the first hour, from Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, justified, declared righteous. So Romans chapter 4 says God justifies the wicked. That's a quote. God justifies the wicked. So God declares righteous, that's what justifies mean, people who are not righteous, people who are actually sinful. That's what he did for me at age 19. That's what he did for you whenever it is that you came to Christ. Predestined, at a point in time, you heard the gospel or read the gospel in, in Scripture like I was doing. God moves upon your heart. You respond in faith and repentance. He justifies, declares you righteous. And then the fourth thing, so the first one is eternity past, and two and three are in time, but then there's he glorified. So when did he glorify you? Because it's in the past tense. And the answer to that is he hasn't glorified you yet. Now how do I know this? Because I've been preaching on heaven a bit. I've been preaching on resurrected bodies and our glorified bodies and all of that. And I'm looking at y'all. No. Nobody in here glorified. So the glorified part has not happened yet. That is in the future when indeed we are changed and we receive our glorified bodies. But it's put in the past tense. Paul can write it in the past tense, just like the predestined and the called and the justified. Here's why he can write it in the past tense, because it's as good as done from God's perspective. It's going to happen. Thanks be to God. So that is called the golden chain of the gospel. And the way that is written, and those he predestined, he also, and those he, he also, it's written that way on purpose to show that it can't be broken. You can't have one of those without the second one. You can't have the first two without the third. All of them happen in the life of those who have been called according to God's purpose. And so God's at work. God's at work conforming us to the image of Jesus, and he will do that. So here's the good news. It is going to happen. Here's the bad news. I mean, you guys could just say, oh, man, that is fantastic. I love Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. God has done this going back to eternity past. God's going to see it going into eternity in the future. In the meantime, he did the work of moving upon my heart and putting me in circumstances to hear the gospel and respond to it and then declares me righteous even though I'm not. And this is all fantastic. It is all stuff that we should celebrate and praise and worship him for. Here's the bad news, though. Though it is inevitable, it's not automatic. Inevitable means it's going to, inevitably it's going to happen. But it happens involving us. That sanctification process, that process of going from predestined, called, justified, between justified and glorified, that's where you are now. And between justified and glorified, there's a bunch of stuff happening in your life. There's a bunch of stuff that you need to deal with, that I need to deal with. 
So the good news is God is at work, has been at work from eternity past. It is going to happen, but though it's inevitable, it's not automatic. So here's how the process then goes between that third one and the fourth one, between justified when you got saved, when you became a Christian, and then in the future when we are glorified. So what's the process now? Toward the beginning of the Change of Heart series, several weeks ago, so I don't expect you to remember, but I mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That passage is the most well-known passage in the Bible about the Bible. And I remind you that it says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for four things. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Those four things. And I said that those are in a logical sequence. That you have, that you can't have, you can't be rebuked until you've first been taught. The teaching actually results in the rebuking. And then you can't be corrected until you first know what it is that you're supposed to be corrected for. That's the rebuking part. And then the training in righteousness is habits of righteousness so that these are instilled in your life. They become part of your normal life. So God does that through his word, by his spirit, teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains. Now we get taught the word of God. We read the word of God. We come to classes at church. This is how we try to provide pathways for you to grow, right? You take advantage of those. You're taught. But then as you're taught, the second thing is you're rebuked. That word for rebuking is the same word in the New Testament. The Greek word is the same word for convicting. So you could say, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and convicting. Because as I look at the Word of God and I see who God is and I see what His purpose for humanity is and I see myself in the pages of Scripture, as James says, the Word of God is like a mirror. And the idea is we're supposed to look into that mirror and not be someone who looks, beholds himself there, sees how disheveled things are, but doesn't make any changes, walks away. Remember James says that? Instead, be doers of the Word, not hearers only. So I am convicted because I see who God is. I see what he made me to be. And yet the word of God convicts me about where I am and what I actually am doing and, and, and the ways in which I am not reflecting his character back to him as his image bearer. The good news is that the word of God goes on to correct and train. Now, between those four things, teaching, convicting, correcting, and, and training, it's the convicting and correcting pieces, the two in the middle, that we get involved. Actually, the, the fourth one as well. God does the teaching through his word and by his spirit. And the spirit of God, the Bible teaches elsewhere, is the agent of convicting us through the word. But then having been convicted, what am I supposed to do now? So this is where you come in. This is where I come in. I mean, if change is supposed to be a regular occurrence because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, if that's the idea here, and it is, God says, 
Well, if that's the case, then change should be happening regularly in my life so that I am convicted and then something happens so that this thing that I was convicted about is changed in my life. So what am I supposed to do when I'm convicted? The Bible teaches you do two things. You confess and you repent. Now, do you guys remember in our change of heart class last week we had, if you weren't here, we, we have the sheets on, that I handed out, the one-page sheet on the Welcome Center desk. Pick one up. It had a chart on it. And in that chart, it showed that, you know, you got the tree and you got the root and you got the bad fruit that comes out of the bad root. <laughs> but that what's supposed to happen is there's supposed to be regular repentance and faith, repentance and believing that's going on. As things are identified in my life that are bad root, that I'm convicted about, then I'm supposed to respond by confessing, repenting, believing. So that's where we come in. You know, it doesn't automatically correct. It's inevitable, but not automatic. I have to, you have to, look at what God has said, see ourselves there, and then confess. The word confess literally means to say the same thing. And so when I see it there, I say, oh Lord, you, you're talking about me. I'm saying the same thing you say about it, God. That I sin in this way against you. And Lord, I want to rid my heart of that. I want to rid my life of that. And so I'm confessing that and I repent of that and I replace I replace it with something else. If you look down on the sheet that you should have received on the way in here, down toward the bottom, I've got Ephesians chapter 4 there. And the second paragraph says, Each of you should put off falsehood. You see that? I've got it in bold. Put off falsehood. But notice, it doesn't put a period there. It doesn't say, stop lying. Period. It's stop lying, but replace it with speaking truthfully. Look down at the stealing piece. I've got it in bold. Steal no longer. So it doesn't just say, stop stealing. Instead, it says, steal no longer, but... Do something useful with your hands so that you'll have something to share with those in need. The idea in, in spiritual growth is that we stop the things that fail to reflect God, God's character, and we replace those things with behaviors and attitudes and words that do. We put off and we put on. So you've got this, the Word of God teaches, convicts, it corrects and it trains in between the convicting and the correcting. The way the correcting happens is we put off and we put on. We confess that, yes, Lord, you have identified an idol in my heart that's bringing forth this bad root. I say what you say about it, and I'm going to follow you with, with this. So that should be the regular thing going on in our lives. But most often what happens is, I've already said, people get comfortable just coming, um, hearing, leaving. 
the people around me, I kind of look like them, I talk like them. So there is that comfort level that we're the good people, there's the bad people, the culture's all the bad people, the worse the culture gets, the better we feel about ourselves. And, and so if I just conform to that, it gives me a sense of security, spiritual security. But see, conforming to other people is not the same thing as conforming to Jesus. So there can be group conformity that is not necessarily conformity to Jesus, right? If we're not real careful. And we want to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus. So we want to get out of the cycle in which you have people who have been saved for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. And those 25, 30 years represent one year of growth. One year of growth over 25 years. So when somebody says, I've been saved for X number of years, what that should represent is that number of years of growth. But very often what it represents is one year-ish of growth, and it's just been 40 years. And I started going to church, and I, and I started, you know, I did change stuff. That's why I say there genuinely is this one year of growth. But we need to move beyond the one year the initial change that took place when we first came to Christ in our, in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our behavior. So maybe before you came to Christ, you were in your thinking a know-it-all. And now that you've come to Christ, you're still a know-it-all, but you just like to flash that you know it all about the Bible. Do you see that that's not that much change? Because what's at the heart of wanting to be known as the one who knows? What's at the heart of wanting to be the know-it-all? Even if the know-it-all is the Bible, what's at the heart of that? Pride, isn't it? And so for some of us in our thinking, we brought pride in and we're still carrying around the baggage of pride. In our thinking, in our talking. Maybe before you came to Christ, you could embarrass a sailor <laughs> with the blue streaks that would come out of your, your mouth. You're cursing and swearing. And, you know, when you came to Christ, you realize that's not, that's not right. I know the church people don't do it. When I go to church, I never hear them doing that. So I've conformed to the church people. I don't swear. Good, there's been that change. Think about all the other ways that your tongue and your mouth are being used. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Well, I got rid of the cursing, you know, that complaining piece, <laughs> arguing piece, or in my, in my behavior. I've gone from maybe, when I came to Christ, self-indulgence, selfish indulgence, in harmful things. So some of you have a testimony. In my case, my dad was a pastor. I went to a Christian school. In, in some ways, I mean, I've got three alcoholics in my family and a lot of substance abuse and overdose deaths. So it's not, 
I sometimes tell Kim I feel like I had a sheltered existence. And she says, what? She reminds me of, of all of this. But God has been very gracious to me to protect me from those things. It's not me, it's him. But some of you have testimonies where, before coming to Christ, you were involved with alcohol. You were involved with drugs. You did have lots of things that were self-indulgent, harmful things. But now that you've come to Christ, you've replaced it, but you've replaced it with self-indulgent, non-harmful things. Notice the common denominator here. So sure, we want to get rid of the alcohol. Sure, we want to get rid of the drugs or whatever it was that was hurting you and hurting other people. But what God wants is for you to move from the root of self-indulgence to God glorification. Sometimes we've moved from selfish indulgence in harmful things to selfish indulgence in non-harmful and, frankly, useless things. But we replaced it not with the kinds of things God says. We replaced it with something else that has the same kind of heart at root, just in a Christianized way. You guys following? It's so easy for us to do that. So I've tried my best here in this opening session to make you feel really bad. In hopes that you'll say, I hope there's some good news in here somewhere. Now, I already gave you some good news. It's, it's inevitable. But I'm also saying, dear friends, it's not automatic. There is a, a biblical process that we go through. And in order for each of us to recognize where sin rears its head in our lives, I want us to take you know, a week or two at least to think about the things I have on that sheet that you should have received on the way in. And I say at the time, I call it personalities of sin. As you'll see, the reason I've called it that is because we each are made differently. We're each wired differently. And so you are going to sin in ways that are characteristic of your personality, your bent you are going to be motivated in, in ways to sin that I'm not going to be, and I'm going to be motivated in ways that you're not. We, we're the same in this respect. We're all sinners. We're different in this respect. We sin differently. And because we sin differently, then when you come to here, if, you, if all you do is come to church, you come, you hear the sermon or the lesson, and whoever's preaching or teaching can do their best to try to, you know, reach your heart. But the truth is, there's such a variety of struggle going on for all of us. How is anybody ever going to hit all of that? The answer is nobody is. So you need a process, and I need a process beyond just coming to church, where we recognize, you know what, I've got characteristic ways that I sin. There's a list of sins and temptations, struggles, that have my name on them. And they're not the same as my spouse. They're not the same as my kids. They're not the same as my pastor. I say at the top there, we sin in characteristic ways through the components of personality. We manifest our sin in different ways partly because we have different personalities. 
We're wired differently. All humanity is made in the image of God to reflect him in our thoughts, our acts, and our feelings. Since our personal resemblance to God is expressed through mind, will, and emotion, that's what personhood is. The ability to, to think and, and choose and feel. So persons have that capacity. God, God is three persons in that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are each able in the Scripture, each think and choose and feel. So that's why we speak of God being the personhood of God. And our being made in the image of God means that we have these traits of, of personhood. And while the entire person is involved in sin, we tend to emphasize one of the components over the others. So what I'm suggesting to you here is that in, this is just an experience that you are made in the image of God with the ability to think and to act and to feel, mind, will, and emotion, but that different people tend to sin in ways that emphasize one of those or two of those over the others. So some people sin intellectually. They're smarter than everybody else. They're the know-it-all. They always have an answer. They, because they think they know the answer, they don't really need to study what God has said very much. They already, they already know. They do well at work. People admire them. And so they take that into their home life. They take that into their church. Intellectual. Emphasis on intellectual sin. But then, of course, there's the volitional piece, the will, the things we choose to do. And that's what we most often associate with sin. Somebody does sin. They sinned in a particular way. If you were here with us first hour, I tried to make clear that sin is way more than that. <laughs> sin is way more than what you do. Sin is what you think. Sin is what you, f you can sin in the way you emote failing to feel toward God the way we're supposed to feel toward God can be sinful. And certainly doing, choosing to do something that God says not to do is certainly sin. But it's only one part, the volitional piece. So there's intellectual, there is will, volitional, and then there's emotional. And this emotional piece is one that people miss. A lot, because we have become convinced of the sovereignty of the emotions. Emotions just are. You just get up feeling one way one day, another day you feel a different way. But there are commands in Scripture for us to cultivate particular kinds of affections and feelings. Are there not? I mean, if you give, get up one day and, you, and you're married and you decide, I don't feel like I love my spouse, too bad. Start cultivating that love and feeling. Okay? Well, and how do you do that? You start reflecting on, on God. You start reflecting on this gift that God has, has given. Sinful gift to be sure, like we all are, but nonetheless, a gift, a gift from God. And you think about what God has made marriage for, and you think about how God is at work in our circumstances, even re adverse relationships, like I talked about in the Change of Heart series. 
in order to cultivate the kinds of feelings that God, that God commands. If you're somebody that is anxious all the time, there may be something, there may be something organic going on there. I want to so there may be some medical issue. There may be some chemical issue. If you're having panic attacks on a regular basis, there may be that going on. I know people who fit in that, into that category. Because we are not only, we not only have the components of personality or personhood, uh, we are also material and immaterial beings. And the material part, our physical bodies, have an effect on how we feel. And so our brains can affect the way we feel, a physical malady. And if that's the case, that needs to be treated with a physical treatment. So I just want to make sure we understand that. I, I get that, okay? But you should also, all of us should, whenever we feel in ways that are contrary to what God says he has designed us to feel, then all of us, should search ourselves for whether or not we are thinking in patterns that are consistent with what God's Word says. Am I trusting in God? Am I secure in God? And the more I focus on those truths about God and apply those to my life, I've seen it happen many, many times. And some of you counsel other people in this, in this congregation about how God worked through you having to rewire the way you thought about God, and it helped you immensely. You still struggled because you had built up these habits over time, but it became, uh, it became uh, quite different, and it was a very evident sign of growth. So we sin in characteristic ways through the components of personality. Now, I am assigning to you this week to think about the ways you sin. And then I want you to turn it. We got it from Adam and Eve. We all got it from the same place. But how did you acquire your particular way of sinning? Where did you get that? So think this week about your character, characteristic ways of sinning. And then next week we'll look at where, where we got that. How we brought this baggage into our walk with the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are actively engaged in changing your people into the image of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to participate in that. Lord, I want to reflect the character of Jesus in my life. But I don't the way I ought. And there are many areas of my life that still need to be confessed, repented of, and replaced. And Lord, I know that's true for all of us, this side of, of heaven. I know this is true for my brothers and sisters here, for the dear friends here. And if we belong to you and we have your Holy Spirit, then it resonates within us to see, to see changes made so that we become more like Jesus next year than we were this year. And so to that end, we, we do this over the next few weeks. And we ask you to help us. Help us to glean truths and insights from your word that we can apply to our lives. Go with us this week as we think about the characteristic ways that we sin, whether intellectually, volitionally, emotionally. We ask you, Lord, to go with us to the places you've assigned to us. Help us to represent you well. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.